Last week we found the Apostle Paul and his friends caught in the middle of a violent mob of men who were so preoccupied with their wallets that they were ready to kill anyone who threatened their income. They were shouting and shoving, spitting and swearing, foaming at the mouth because Paul had threatened the goddess Artemis. She was central to the Ephesian economy and identity, and Paul threatened Ephesus by declaring that Artemis is not actually a god, but Jesus is. It's the sort of claim that he had been making in that ancient Greco-Roman city for three years now. And the gospel of God's grace had captured the hearts and imaginations of many people in Ephesus, and they were beginning to turn repent from their former way of life in order to respond to the call of Jesus to live in holiness and truth. And the violent mob that swallowed up Paul's friends is proof that the Ephesians chose to follow Jesus at great risk to their person and position in life. They were a great source of joy and pride for Paul and further evidence of the movements of the Holy Spirit in this world as the Father continues to reconcile to Himself men and women from every nation through the work of Jesus on their behalf. But the time has come for Paul to leave Ephesus. At first he went west, young man, and leaving Turkey, he spent time in Macedonia and Greece. But our story this morning catches him on his return trip to Jerusalem. He was in a rush to get to Jerusalem because at every church along the way, he had taken up a collection of money to help impoverished Christians living in Jerusalem. And he wanted to deliver that gift to them before the day of Pentecost. And working with that tight timeline, he therefore made the difficult decision to sail past Ephesus and instead dock his boat at Miletus, another ancient city in Turkey, about 90 miles south of Ephesus. But his love for the Ephesians was so strong that even though he was 90 miles away, he couldn't resist the opportunity to encourage the church in that ancient city. So he sent a messenger to ask the elders in Ephesus to come visit him in Miletus. Paul had an ominous feeling about what awaited him in Jerusalem. And in verse 22, he told the elders when they arrived in Miletus that he was going to Jerusalem, not knowing what would happen to him there, except that the Holy Spirit had been testifying to him in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await him there. And it's true. The closer Paul got to Jerusalem, the louder and more frequent were the warnings that he was going to be harshly received in that city. In fact, Paul was convinced that this meeting with the Ephesian elders in Miletus would be the last time they would see each other. None of you will see my face again, is what he told them in verse 25. And so naturally, the tone of this meeting was heavy and somber, The last few verses of our passage tell of Paul and the elders kneeling on the ground and praying together. And there was much weeping on the part of all, the text says. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You can just imagine these elders escorting their beloved Paul to the ship, weeping as they went. There is intense emotion in this rendezvous at Miletus, and there was nothing sweet in the party. It was only sorrow. 
Paul was following in his Savior's footsteps, and he was going to Jerusalem to die. But before that ship to Jerusalem departed, he had much to say to the elders, and we would do well to pay attention to what he says here, because these are his last words to them, and he therefore chose them well. The scene here is almost like that of a dying parent having a final conversation with their child before leaving the world. In those fleeting moments, a parent's heart is wide open to their child. And with their last breaths, the dying person will state more clearly and succinctly those things that will benefit the living than they ever could have when they were fully alive. For there's a certain clarity of mind that the dying possess. And Paul communicates three things to the Ephesians in his final conversation with them. He explains himself, he explains his God, and then he invites the Ephesians to join him in following God. Would you not do the same if you, Christian parents, had an opportunity to have a final conversation with your children? Would you not remind them of who you are, remind them of who your God is, and then invite them to follow him? Paul is speaking to these elders as a parent. Every cell in his body is just pulsing with love for them in this moment. And so he begins his conversation by reminding them of who he was. And this is how he wants to be remembered because this is how he tried to live. He didn't always succeed, but this is the version of Paul that he aspired to be every day and how he hopes to be remembered. Paul was obsessed with Jesus. And madly in love with his people. Those two, Jesus and his people, determined everything the Apostle Paul did. When making decisions, he did not factor himself into the equation. In the first part of verse 24, he writes, I do not count, account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. And some would say that Paul had low self-esteem and he needed to think more highly of himself. But it wasn't that Paul didn't think highly of himself. It was just that he held Jesus and his church even higher. For Paul, the question was always, what does God want from me? How many of us factor that question into our decision making? Never mind making it the first question we ask. What does God want from me? Paul was convinced that God wanted him, had called and equipped him to serve the church as a pastor, an apostle. Paul's happiness was not a factor. His comfort was not a factor. Location was not a factor. His income and career were not factors. We read in verse 34 towards the end of our passage this morning that during the three years that Paul worked in Ephesus, he never received a paycheck from the church. In verse 31, we see that he put in long hours, working night and day, and he was heavily invested, invested enough to shed tears over the people he was ministering to. And yet, he never received a paycheck. He had every right to get paid. And in other places, he encourages churches to pay their pastors. So don't get any crazy ideas. But Paul didn't think it would be good for the church in Ephesus. Instead, Paul chose to be bivocational. He made and repaired tents, and by his own hands, he provided for his and his friends' needs. He did this because he knew the faith of some in the church was weak enough that they would be hindered by the idea of a person receiving money in order to proclaim the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. He talked about Jesus 
free of charge, nonstop. And they weren't paying him, so there's no stopping him. And we see from the early verses of our passage that Paul preached to anyone who would listen. Jew and Greek, he says. It made no difference to him, their race or gender or socioeconomic status. They all needed Jesus. And we see that he preached Jesus in both public and private. From house to house, he says in verse 20. And he preached Jesus in both easy times and hard times, even though most of the time it was hard. He reminds the Ephesians in verse 19 that they witnessed the violence and the threats that he suffered in Asia for preaching about Jesus. And how despite all that, he did not shrink from declaring to them anything that was profitable. He stood when all he wanted to do was lay down and sleep or cry. He was not able to do this because he was a superman. No, he certainly bore the effects of this difficult life. He was exhausted. And in verse 19, he admits that he cried a lot. But Paul was a man who was under obligation. He was called to this life. And so he humbled himself before God in order to receive everything that came along with that call. In fact, Paul writes in verse 22 that he now goes to Jerusalem despite the fact that he knows that more suffering and pain await him there because he's constrained by the Spirit to go. This is the language of slavery. The NRSV, the version in your pews, translate this phrase as captive to the Holy Spirit. Paul did not consider himself when making decisions, but asked, what does God want from me? Because he viewed himself and understood himself to be a slave of the Spirit of God. He went where the Spirit led him, even if that was into suffering and pain, because God had given him a calling that included suffering in the terms of the call. In verse 24, you hear Paul say that the most important thing to him is to finish the course and the ministry that he received from Jesus. And he did that at great cost to himself. But that's how he was to be remembered. And he doesn't want you or the Ephesians to forget it. That he gave you the gospel for free. At great cost to himself. But he doesn't just want you to know him. He also wants you to know his God. And what is the character of this God who would call the people out of slavery to sin and misery and then make themselves make them slaves of the spirit and then send them back in the world to do work that is inherently miserable that has suffering included in the very call Paul had been stretched thin in his life as a servant of Christ he was to quote a reputable hobbit Bilbo Baggins like butter scraped over too much bread But this was all God's doing. And where is the consolation? Where is the grace of God that Paul says he was called to proclaim? Where is God's message of grace that Paul commended to the elders in verse 32? Paul lived under immense pressure as an apostle. From his opponents, but also from his God. He understood that God had built into his call the same caveat that he had included in the prophet Ezekiel's call read for you earlier. It's this, whatever I tell you, that you must say. If, I, if you relay everything I tell you to the people and they don't repent out of rebellion, then they will be responsible for their own lives. But if you keep quiet 
And the people do not repent out of ignorance because you did not tell them what I told you to tell them, then their blood will be on your hands. It's no wonder Paul talked about Jesus night and day in private and in public and to anyone who would listen. And you can almost hear the relief in his voice when he can with confidence tell the elders in verses 26 and 27 that I'm innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He was under immense pressure. But where is the consolation? Where is the grace we hear that is inherent in God's character? The consolation for Paul and the consolation for any Christian who follows Jesus is in the knowledge that Jesus left the glories of heaven to die an inglorious death on earth. Jesus' comfort was not a factor in his decision. His happiness was not a factor. His income was not a factor. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that although he, Jesus was rich, for our sake he became poor. The question for Jesus was always, what does the Father want from me? What does God want from me? And the answer God gave him was, I want them. And he pointed to you. And so the Son of God humbled himself and he entered the world as a human being born of the Virgin Mary. And Jesus humbled himself even further and took the punishment of a rebellious humanity on his shoulders as he hung lifeless on a Roman cross abandoned by God. He has known the heights of heaven and the depths of hell. And so Jesus never asks anything of us that he himself has not first already experienced. Are you weary and thin? So is he. And he's with you in your weariness and in your thinness. Are you depressed? He was a man of sorrows. And he will sit with you in the darkness and lead you through that dark night. Are you in pain? The scars on his wrists and his ankles are evidence that he can relate. Are you alone? So is he. Everyone abandoned him in his greatest time of need. Even his three closest friends could not, could not remain awake one hour in order to comfort him in his distress. His family mocked him. He was treated as an outcast. Are you scared and anxious? His blood vessels burst under the pressure of what he was being asked to do. And the whole story of Paul gathering the Ephesian elders is just further evidence that Jesus accompanies those whom he calls. Paul was preparing his elders for his mistreatment in Jerusalem and inevitable death in the, in the very same way that Jesus prepared his disciples for his mistreatment and death in that same city. Paul shed tears and so did Jesus. Paul approached his call with humility and Jesus humbly declared, Not my will, but yours be done. Every step Paul took, Jesus was with him and in him. Paul heard the echoes of Jesus' story in his own, and he knew that although he was going to suffer, that Jesus would go with him. And he will go with you too. You whom Jesus has called into his service in the world and made slaves of the Holy Spirit. And the chances are that you are probably not called to the same thing that Paul was called to, a pastor of the church. But John Calvin wrote that Paul's calling is unto every one of us, a rule of good life. 
And the question is the same whether you are called to be a pastor, a teacher, a lawyer, a consultant, a student, a parent, an engineer, an artist, a manual laborer. The question is, what does God want from me? For whatever you are, you are under obligation. A man or a woman enslaved to the Spirit. And if you sincerely ask that question with some regularity, then you will find yourself in situations like Paul, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in your body the death of Jesus, but so that the life of Jesus may also be shown in your bodies. This is the life of the Christian. Death mixed with life. Because we are following Jesus who died in order to bring us life. When we suffer, we are communing with our Savior. And the consolation is that wherever you are and whatever you are doing, Jesus is with you, making himself known through you. And your end is already known, for you belong to God. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. He charges the elders to care for the church, which belongs to God because he has purchased it. He has purchased you with the blood of his son. As long as Jesus is alive, you have a guarantee and a hope of what you will also be one day. And so the suffering of this world is but momentary. What's 80, 90 years in comparison to eternity? And the suffering of this world is aimed towards preparing you for that blessed eternity. The upward call of God is forever. You will grow in wisdom and knowledge and skill forever once you leave this world. You will have that rest that you crave. But right now, while you are living on this earth, we grow through suffering. And God is calling you to serve Him in whatever capacity He has called you to live in this day. And this requires you to change your mind. Instead of thinking about your resume or your marketability, the question is, what does God want from me? Instead of thinking about your income, the question is, what does God want from me? Instead of thinking about your passion even, the question is, what does God want from me? It may be something you're passionate about and it may not be. Instead of thinking about your comfort, the question is, what does God want from me? All of life must run through Him. And only then will you be happy because only then will you be confident that you are fulfilling your purpose that God has called you to in this world. And I'll close with this quote from a book that we'll be giving to our new members when they join the church in November. Just another reason to join the church, right? It's a book called A Little Book on the Christian Life. And John Calvin is the author. He writes, The one who directs himself toward the goal of observing God's calling will have a life well composed. Free from rash impulses, he won't attempt more than his calling warrants. He will understand that he shouldn't overstep his boundaries. He who lives in obscurity will live an ordinary life without complaint, so that he won't be found guilty of deserting his divinely appointed post. Indeed, in the midst of troubles, hardship, annoyances, and other burdens, he will find great relief when he remembers that God is his guide in all these matters. The magistrate will more gladly attend to his duties. The father will more gladly commit himself to his responsibilities. Each person, in whatever his station in life, will endure and overcome troubles, inconveniences, 
disappointments, and anxieties, convinced that his burden has been placed upon him by God. Great consolation will follow from all of this. For every work performed in obedience to one's calling, no matter how ordinary and common, is radiant, most valuable in the eyes of our Lord. And so I say the same thing that Paul said to the elders when he left them in Miletus. I commend you to God and to the word of grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.